welcome to the Simply Financial Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Calandra. This is episode number 20 of season number four. My guest today I've known for a couple of years, and she is very impressive, uh, Catherine Awad. I want to talk about um, her early stage career, a little bit of her relationship with money and thoughts and stuff like that. Candidly, she and I haven't had in our many discussions uh, we haven't tackled a lot of these things, so I'm really curious to get the answer to some of the questions that I have. So, Catherine, I appreciate you spending a few times, a uh, few minutes with me today. How are you doing? I'm good, Chris. Happy to join you. Happy to have this conversation, and hopefully, you know, you'll get some some young listeners that are interested in, in investing and saving with you after this. So, would you consider yourself? Or are you considered a millennial? Yes. Yes, I am. I fall into the millennial age group without a doubt. Okay. And so I don't know if we could, I don't know if it's appropriate to mention the firm that you work for, but um, uh, you went to school for accounting, graduated from the University of Connecticut, and you work in auditing. Is that right? That's correct. I work for PricewaterhouseCooper, which is um, one of the big four accounting firms. Okay, so you let's let's just jump in a little bit, and then I, I want to double back uh, to some other things earlier on in your life. But um, auditing for one of the big firms, a couple of years out of college. How long you been out of school now? I I graduated from UConn in 2013, so it'll be seven years as of May 15th. So. My understanding is that you picked a career, or at least a job, um, that's very intense, where you work a massive amount of hours. I mean, it is a grind. Is that a fair depiction? That is. So there are definitely parts of the year where I am extremely busy, and there are other parts of the year that I'm not as busy, and so it's kind of a give and take, but usually the months of January through March, and I'm not a tax accountant, so it has nothing to do with the tax deadline being April 15th. Um, but January through March is what we like to refer to as busy season, where I am working six to seven days a week, at least 12 hours a day, Monday to Thursday, and then usually we do two, hour, two eight-hour days on, on Fridays and Saturdays. So it's, it's pretty intensive. But it's really only for those other those three or four months. The rest of the year is a little bit more, let's say, normal, where a 40-hour work week. Or are you typically throughout the year, even during the quote-unquote slower period, you're still working more than 40 hours on average, you think? Yeah, so it depends. Um, I A lot of the times, basically, what we'll have is we'll have busy season, and then we have our quarters. And so during... The months when we have quarters, so there would be the, the month post-quarter close, we are a little bit busier just to help our clients get out their uh, their queue filings and whatnot. But it's still not that bad, I would say. The summer months, so usually June, July, and August. July, there's probably a couple of weeks from the quarter perspective where we're a bit busier. But, you know, I'm 40 hours, if that, and the firm actually lets us do what's called Flex Friday during the summer. And so essentially, if you get your 40 hours in Monday to Thursday, then you, you get a three-day weekend. So that's definitely one of the perks. So Catherine, how did you decide on this path? So I actually had 
no desire to be an accountant, to be completely honest with you. I was going to school my freshman year. I went to Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and I wanted to be a sports agent. Jerry Maguire showed me the money, all that kind of stuff. So I had a plan to do a sports management program at Duquesne, and then the plan was to go to law school. And when I transferred back to Connecticut and went to UConn my sophomore year, they didn't have a sports management program there. Um, And so I pretty much came into the business school undecided. And my two roommates that I was living with at the time were both accounting majors. And so talking to them and then taking my first financial accounting course with a professor who definitely had a huge impact on me kind of led me down this path. Um, but if you had told me or even asked me what a big four accounting firm was or what a CPA was when I was 18 and a freshman in college, I would have looked at you with a blank stare. Like I had no idea what you were talking about. So it was definitely not the path that I thought I was going to be on, but I'm, I'm happy that it's where I ended up. So this is um, a difficult um, career path because it's intense, right? And we already talked about, the, you know, you have to work a decent amount. Um, I think it's a grind. It's important work in the financial accounting field, but it's also, I think, financially lucrative. I think, uh, and and don't tell us how much you make or anything like that, but I think coming out of school and a few years into it, the salary and bonus expectations are higher than a lot of other areas that you can go into early on in your career. How much was driven by the desire to earn an above-average salary versus – um, your interest in accounting and getting your career started. Were you driven a lot by the financial rewards of going to auditing with one of the big four firms? So it definitely was an added bonus. Um, I would say that you know money is a motivator, and fortunately for me, I'm in an industry where you progress, and as you progress, you know you get raises and bonuses based on performance and whatnot. Um, I wouldn't say that it was the biggest factor, but it definitely played a big role because I did strive to be financially independent once I was coming out of college, a lot of which stems from, you know, growing up in a not normal environment, I would say, and having a mom who worked a lot of jobs to make sure my siblings and I were provided for. So having one job and a stable income, um, was important for me and and working for a public accounting firm allowed me those things so so let's explore that a bit the 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 home you grew up in was it a a wealthy family would you describe it as poor upper middle class lower middle class how would you describe it so my parents divorced when i was 11 um but prior to that we actually were were pretty well off we owned a couple of pharmacies. Both of my parents are pharmacists. We owned two pharmacies and we also owned a home health care business. Um, and so I grew up up until I was 11, you know, pretty well off. I had, we had no issues with money at all. Um, okay. Post-divorce, both of my parents actually, and um, they had to file for bankruptcy due to just some extenuating circumstances that occurred. And so after that, my mom did a hell of a job raising all four of us. Um, you know, she put us all through college. She at one point had two kids in, in college, one in a private college, one in a public, and had the other two of us in a private high school. Um, and at that point, we all had cars and cell phones, and, and we were extremely lucky. So 
we kind of went from one end of the spectrum to the other. I would never say that we were poor, and I was very fortunate, but it, it definitely was a lot of hard work post-divorce and watching my mom grind day in and day out to make sure that we were taken care of. So, It sounds like at 11, 12, 13 years old that made an impression on you, no? It did, and I think, honestly, as, as I – my siblings all basically – grew up and moved out. I am the youngest of four, my older sister being six years older than I am, and, and my brothers falling in between that range. Um, and so after they were all out of the house and it was just my mom and I, I think that I really, it allowed me to take into perspective how hard she worked to make sure that we were provided for. Um, you know, she was always there. We always made sure that she and I had dinners during the week so that we could catch up. But it was a lot of, you know, me becoming independent because she was working so hard to make sure that we were provided for, and that had a lasting impact on me. So when you were young, let's say post-divorce, what did you learn about money? So admittedly, there weren't many conversations about money in terms of, you know, investing and credit scores and, and things of that nature and the importance of them, but it was very obvious to me that working hard to make sure that you were financially stable and able to provide yourself a life that you were comfortable with was important. And so I actually, from the day that I was 16, I had had a job. And even before that, I mean, in the summer as I was, you know, a camp counselor and, you know, worked to have some spending money and things like that. But I have had a job since I was 16. I worked at a YMCA, I worked as an intern some places, I was a nanny for a long time. Um, and so I think that it really just, she said, put the impression on me that, you know, you have to work to be able to afford the life that you want and to make sure that you are able to provide the things for yourself that you need. So I have always had, thankfully, a very strong work ethic, which was developed as a result of watching my mom do the things that she did. I see. Well said. You, um, you used the term like you're driven to be financially independent. Does that stem from the interruption in lifestyle and seeing your mom work so hard to provide for you and your siblings? Is that the origin of this? Or do you think you probably would be driven anyway, right? Some of this is just who you are, no? Yeah, it's, it's definitely naturally ingrained of me, um, but I do think that the biggest component of it is the fact that I watched my mom go through a lot, and so I didn't want to have to be in a situation, and she's the best woman in the world. I didn't want to have to work five jobs. I didn't want to have to, you know, like never be home or never have some free time or always feel that there were some stressors related to money, and so fortunately the the path that I took has allowed me to work one stable job, have a very stable income, even in unprecedented times like the one that we're in right now with all COVID-19 and so many people having to go on unemployment. Um, and so I do think that a lot of it stems from just wanting to be able to be stable and have a stable income and not so, have to worry. So let me, let me ask you this, because, you know, as a, as a financial planner, uh, I've been at this for 26 years, and in, in some ways, your story is similar to others. What I'm thinking about, though, Catherine, is that many of those people who had some type of interruption where their parents 
you know, a parent passes away or divorce or failed business, you know, they, they, they do react similar to you where they're driven, they want to have financial independence, uh, strong work ethic. So there's co some commonality there. But oftentimes that also is accompanied by a constant sense of insecurity, that they're driven, that they're, they want to make money, and, and, and have some of the traits or all of the traits that you have, but it comes from a deep sense of insecurity. In my discussions with you since I've known you, I don't pick up on the insecurity part of that that I see many times with others. What do you think about that? I definitely think that, that that's a factor. Um, not as much for me. I think that in the last six years alone and working with the firm, I have grown a ton. Um, I'm not, and I, I do think that a big part of it is I know, God forbid, anything were to ever happen that, you know, my family would be supportive and help me. But I think a lot more of it for me just comes from the fact that, you know, I'm strong-willed, I'm independent, and I work really hard. So um, I'm less insecure. I know that I'm employable. And a lot of those factors help allow me to be secure in where I am in life right now. Okay. Very good. Uh, Catherine, do you have any rules on handling money? I do. Um, so I am actually very diligent about tracking where my money is going on a monthly basis. I put 10% in pre-tax to my 401k, so I automatically live on 90% of my take-home pay on a monthly basis. Um, I put money away into an investment account, and I also put money into essentially an emergency fund to make sure, you know, if anything were to happen in unforeseen circumstance, like something like COVID-19 that's going on in the market right now, that I'm, that I'm safe and secure. And I also make sure that, you know, every bill that I have, every miscellaneous item that I'm spending, whether it be a manicure or a pedicure, you know, food, gas, getting a haircut, things like that, I, uh, I make sure that I'm tracking those things on a monthly basis so that I can see where my money is going. And have, since you've been out of school, well, it could even be prior to that, have there been any notable money mistakes, errors you've made that you've <laughs> learned from, areas where, you know, things that you wouldn't want to do again? Yeah, so if I can go back, I would probably slap 21-year-old me in the head. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I decided... And my mom tried her hardest to talk me out of it, but I was stubborn and I wanted it. I decided that I needed to buy myself a Mercedes-Benz when I was 21. Impressive. And I loved the car. Yeah. I loved the car. It was beautiful. It was probably one of the most irresponsible financial decisions that I've ever made. I mean, I could afford it, but I also wasn't able to save nearly as much as I should have been at that point in time because the car payments, the maintenance, the insurance, the gas, like all of those things added up. And I got it out of my system, so I don't regret it. But like I said, if I could go back and slap 21-year-old me, I definitely would. So when you, when you got rid of the Mercedes-Benz, and, and I bet you it was a beautiful car, and to be 21, you must have been living large. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> you, so when you got rid of the Mercedes-Benz, did you absorb a financial loss or it was more the opportunity that you, you couldn't do other productive things with the money because so much was going into the car? 
it was more so that there just was so much money being spent on it that it just wasn't it wasn't happening anymore. I just knew that at that point I needed to downsize. I actually did have to roll over some of the loan that I had onto the new car that I bought, um, which definitely sucked, but I was fortunate enough to get a new car at a time when they were offering 0% financing, which was great for me, but that did it did impact and added um, a, a sizable chunk onto the loan that I had to take for my next vehicle. Okay. So do you think you would ever again buy a car outsized for your budget? No, definitely not. What do you drive now? Lord, do you drive like a I 1972 have... Chevy Nova or something like that? <laughs> no, I actually have a 2013 Acura ILX, like a little sedan. Yeah, it's perfect okay. for me. Yep, I've had many. It's still uh, a very nice car, but not as nice as my Mercedes, but that's okay because it gets me from point A to point B, and that's what's important. So actually that tees up my next question is now that you've been in the workforce a bit, what about money is important to you? What, what do you want it to do for you? I think one of the biggest things for me is making sure that I'm set up later in life to be able to retire. I don't want to be in a situation where, you know, I'm 65 and still having to work. Like I want to be able to make sure that I, I'm setting myself up. And obviously that's a long way away seeing as how I'm only 28, but a lot of it for me is just wanting to make sure that I'm financially stable so that I can get to a place in my life where I am able to retire because I don't want to work forever. Um, and so I'm, I feel I'm taking the steps now to get there. So I want to follow up again. I keep coming back to you said financial independent. So square this for me. You're, you're 28, as you said, and you make a good income. You're financially fit, making a lot of smart financial decisions, right? You're driving a car that you probably could afford a nicer car than you have and still not get to the extreme of what you did when you were 21 with the Mercedes. Is that fair? Very fair. And you're thinking about, okay, I want to retire well, which is a notable goal. And it's something that I talk a lot with clients about, planning for retirement so you could retire in dignity, but also retire in style so you could enjoy your retirement years. But how do you handle the thought about financial independence between 28 and whenever you retire, which is way out in the future? What does financial independence mean for you in your late 20s into 30s? Listen, I don't want to make you any older, <laughs> any faster. I'm going to be 50 this year, so I'm particularly sensitive to that. But what does financial <laughs> independence look like over the next five and 10 years, not so much 30 years down the line? I am very cognizant about debt and all of those factors. And so I think one of the biggest things for me is not having to feel like I'm struggling or would have to rely on anybody else to help me provide, you know, essentials to myself. And I think that that is a big piece of it for me is, you know, I live by myself. I pay my rent. I am able to do all those things without having to rely on anyone. And, that's how I would like to, to continue. I don't want to have to feel like I'm a burden on anyone else or that I have to almost, you know, make myself right. vulnerable and put myself in a situation where I have to become dependent on somebody else to help me live. Um, and that's, that's huge for me. And Catherine, that ties into what we spoke about before, it seems to me, that by managing your money well, 
being disciplined on the debt side, living beneath your means, and being smart and diligent, you know, that makes you independent. And that allows so that if something negative should happen, um, you're not overstretched where you would be a burden on anyone or you'd be in a position to get hurt too badly. It all kind of ties together. Absolutely. So I was going to ask, and this is literally the question I have in front of me, I don't think you're a free spender, but what is something you splurge on? But you sort of answered it with the Mercedes. Um, but, <laughs> it, but since then, is there anything that you do splurge on even while you're being disciplined and watching your money carefully? Yeah, so travel, honestly. I love to travel. I love seeing new places. I love experiencing new cultures. And that is one area where I definitely let myself be a little bit more free, I would say, in terms of spending. Not like I'm not going to go drop, you know, exorbitant amounts of money on, right. on a trip. But I did just take a beautiful trip to Italy with my best friend, you know, we did um, <clears throat> Rome and Florence, and we were there for 10 days, and it was exquisite, and I can't wait to go back. We were planning a trip to Greece and Croatia, which obviously now has been put on hold, but looking forward to doing that, um, and I would say that's, that's probably my, my go-to in terms of splurging. Yes, I uh, went to Italy one time, and I would agree with you. I'm, um, my heritage is Italian. I don't know if it's the same for you, but it is such an unbelievably beautiful, beautiful country, so picturesque, uh, rich history, amazing food, unbelievable wine. And I could tell you, like, one of my bucket list items is that uh, before too long, I don't want to do it when I'm 75, but I would like to go and spend a month in Italy. And that's something that uh, is one of those goal-oriented, you know, like I said, bucket list kind of things. So I agree with you on the, on the Italy front. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. I mean, I ate, and, I ate my weight in pasta and drank my weight in wine, and I, it was definitely a trip of a lifetime. So I can't wait to go back there. Very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. So, Catherine, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with me today. It was a variable, very enjoyable conversation. Um, I wanted to ask you one final question, though. Millennials, kind of in certain <laughs> circles, get a bad rap. Uh, yeah, they do. And it we seems do, to me say. with the, the people that I've met, clients as well as people on the team here at Elliott Wealth, that there are some millennials that are definitely, I don't know if I should say losers because that's probably harsh and sophisticated <laughs> show. Um, you know, and, and there is an element to your generation that falls into that category. But my experience with the majority of the millennial generation is outstanding, hardworking like you, smart. Um, sometimes impatient, but young generations are always impatient in some ways. So you agree with me that the bad rap they get is probably not deserved for most of the generation, even though you have some losers. Yeah, so you, you definitely have a couple bad eggs in the batch, I would say, but a lot of the people, and especially the people that I work with, you know, we're all in the same age group at the firm and everybody is hardworking. We all know, you know, the value of a dollar and, and how much it takes to earn. And I think a lot of us definitely do get a bad rap. But, you know, 
we work hard, we understand the value of money, we want to make sure that, you know, the economy continues to do well. And, and I think that the millennials are up and coming and we're doing great. I, I, I agree. Very well said. And, and I'll just add that I'm a Gen Xer and there's definitely losers in Generation <laughs> X too. Uh, so every, you, every generation definitely has the course. bad batch, but of you course. Know, can't let and that And every older them. generation disparages the younger generation. It's just the way that it goes. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm sure that in 20 years I'll be thinking the same thing about whatever next whatever yeah, next population group we have. Of course. So, listeners, if you haven't subscribed to the Simply Financial podcast already, please do so. I would appreciate it a ton. Additionally, if you're not a client of ours already, please check out our website, uh, www.elliotwealth.com. You could get more information about me and the team and how we help our clients win with money. Again, Catherine, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. And I look forward to speaking with you uh, offline soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of SagePoint Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial.